listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 R. Hello. 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 You're listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week, the 25th of February to the 1st of March, officially the last week of summer. Oh. Sort of Hottest summer on record. Ooh, that's not depressing. Uh, this week we were joined by Elizabeth Debesky, who has been away for a while, but she was back for food interlude. It was lovely. We are talking about uh, alcohol-free drinks, like because it was being fed fast and yes. lots of people have been drinking uh, mocktails, which she doesn't like, as it turns out. And uh, I brought in something for show and tell. Loved it. Loved Brand new segment. That's yes. it. That's the, thing, that's the thing I brought in that I'm waving in the mic. Bit of... Bit of paper. Bit of paper. And that's all there was to it. <laughs> There's a bit more. Uh, <laughs> really run out of really ideas selling, four years. Selling this podcast. <laughs> uh, we talked about uh, annoying questions you get asked in small talk situations. Uh, like, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. No. <laughs> um, Google me. Uh, <laughs> You'll find out that I'm uh, the top, top ten, ten the funniest female comedian in the world. Uh, and also, uh, Dr. – oh, no, he's not a doctor. I'll call him a doctor. Simon Hinckley came in to talk about um, bugs. Also known as Dr. Bugman. Dr. Bugman. <laughs> yes, and Lindsay Tanner came in, former Labor MP, to tell us about his book, A Comeback, and we caught up – with former race discrimination, Tim Supermarsan, to talk about his book. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Listening to Breakfasters, uh, do you know sometimes you get asked questions and it's just normal, every day, people are just trying to make conversation, they're just... They're just having a lovely time and they've just met you perhaps or they're just having, they just want to be nice and civil and then they ask you something that they think is probably fine but, but you it's find not fine. It, that it's not. You find it so draining. Uh, like as a, as a comedian, there are many that I get. Um, oh, I can imagine. I feel bad though. Don't you feel bad? It makes me feel like a shit person every time I get annoyed by someone asking me, Oh, a question. You yes. know, a yes. question. I'm like, I'm the in the wrong here. Yeah, yeah. Because I don't. Just know. makes you angrier, though. Yeah, that I know. Oh. <laughs> they don't know, and they're the just being cycle. nice, and it's yes. so. Oh. So what's what's the Give question that annoys you oh, the most? Which, oh, there's a few. Like, um, <laughs> like say something funny. What it's the what kind of comedy do you do? It's uh-huh. like, well, just fun. It's the just unfunny funny. kind. Yeah, yeah. Just that is an annoying question. It's kind of it's having to ex- explain comedy. Can I tell you? I know this mm. isn't the same, but I feel like my equivalent of that is what kind of music do you like? Oh, mate, that was, I, had, I had that written down. Kind I had that of, written that's down. not a question. There's not yeah. a kind of music someone likes anymore. It's like 1992. Yeah, yeah exactly. I was, uh, that was going to be my question, yeah. too. Is that your worst one? Is like, oh. what kind of music do you like? I feel bad because you know, they're just trying to yeah. conversation and they're mm. choosing a topic that you might, you know, I yeah. still haven't learned how to answer it. I'd, I'd like to think. Um, what do you I'm, say? I'm a, oh, it's a bit eclectic. Ah. Like, that's what um um that's from Sister Act Two. When she ah. goes, Mine, I like I liked uh, eclectic music. That's where I first learned about the word eclectic. From, I feel from that from probably <laughs> shuts down the conversation too because people don't have to come back to that. Yeah, yeah. it's just like I like all different. Except you know, I don't like. No, I like all. But of when it. people ask you what kind of com- comedy, what what's your answer? Oh, just kind of, it's different every time. Oh, I just tell stories, you know, funny stories about my life. Where do you get your material from? Oh. I'm getting Jesus. material right now. 
from you in this conversation. But it's also this happened when um, we were away, and I had uh, one of Kat's family members had seen me on something. And this is the thing, they'd seen the whole thing. This is when I was dressed up as a reindeer for Sammy J's 12 J's of Christmas. So, but, and it was just on ABC. It was just a little sketch show thing. Um, and I don't know how else to explain it that other than I was dressed up as a reindeer introducing, we had little sketches to introduce other sketches, right? Yeah. And he'd watched the whole thing and still went, so what was what was that about? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I don't know. It's a bit hard to explain. Yeah. I said, oh, oh. I don't know. I was just, I was a reindeer. It was, you know, oh. it's just Chris of the 12. Oh, I don't know. I was a reindeer. <laughs> what more do you need to know? Yeah. What a was really all, creepy reindeer. What was all that about? Uh, what kind of comedy? What, what else? The, oh, yeah, say something funny. Um, oh, say something funny. Yeah. I can't but, believe people do that to you. Say something funny. Oh, man, it's. It doesn't happen as much anymore. Oh, you know what else is annoying? The um, uh, would I have heard of you or are you famous? And it's like, well, there's no good yeah. answer to that, is there? I know because you're like, well, if you if you're asking the question, then perhaps not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah that's very like. Why would you? What yeah. are you in asking that? You're either you're saying you don't know who I am. What are you, you going to say? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah. can't believe you haven't heard of me. I, do you know what I used End to do? End of conversation. Do you know what I used to do? Like, like years ago, people would like kind of look at me. At I could they go, have I seen you somewhere before? Have I, do I do I know you? And so I just go, do you watch do you watch Neighbours? And they go, yeah. And I go, I was in Neighbours. Or I'd go, home, oh, or I'd say, Home good. and Away. Yeah, I'd go, Neighbours or Home and Away every time. And then they go, oh, yeah, okay, cool. And that would be enough to satisfy them. That'd be that assume that they just kind of Because there's so many knew. people that have been on Neighbours. And it's, yeah. You and could have a lot of fun there. You could be like, Fish and Chip Shop. Yeah. <laughs> And they just go, what? And they'd walk off, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, Sexual diseases yeah. clinic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you go there? Why is there not a thing? Is there a sexual disease? Oh, like Jesus. 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 You know, <laughs> STD clinic. You know, you know, like this is this is going to sound totally. Sorry, I'm not yet. I'm sorry. Go back to sexual diseases clinic. Just, maybe that's where they know you from. <laughs> Just help them out. I can't breathe anymore. Anyway, Um, no, I know this is going to sound totally. But the 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 one I really hate is totally reasonable question, but I absolutely hate it. People ask you, so what do you do? Oh, and the reason yes, why, because yeah. I say like, well, I think I don't yeah, know what I do. <laughs> Read the news on bloody Triple R. What kind of a job is that? It's not it's like a really a good job. job. Yeah, it's a great job. It is, but also like if they don't haven't heard of Triple R and they don't know what it is, then you have to kind of explain it it's, to oh, them. That, that's what's wrong with yes. that question. It's the opening up of the longer conversation you don't want to have. Yeah, it's like I have this often with Uber drivers, and they say, "What do you do?" And I say, "I'm a broadcaster," and then they say, "Where do you broadcast?" And I say, mm. "That." that Building yeah. we just drove past because <laughs> just driving around this area, also, and then it's like a long combo. Yeah. Also, there's the so uh, tell me about yourself. Oh yeah. Yeah. No one does that. 
Yeah. Today? Oh, maybe on a first date or something like that. But yeah, oh, yeah. No, you bad. feel the conversation is going nowhere when people say, yeah. tell me about yourself. Tell me about yourself. I, I feel like I was having this, I said this at a dinner party I was at recently. So I don't love, I get that the question, so what do you do, is really redundant. Like it's a bit, it's a crappy question sometimes. Mm. It's like, oh, but what else do you ask when you're at oh, a place? Yeah, you know, sure. When you're, That's when you're at a dinner totally and you don't reasonable. know people, mm. I either go, tell me about your family history yeah. or I say, what do you do? What, yeah. are, what are your hobbies? <laughs> what are your hobbies? And then if I say that, I, I mean, the other thing, I, if I'm not talking about working here, they say that I'm a writer and then they say, would you, would I have read anything of yours? And I think, I don't know what you oh, bloody yeah. read. Why do don't I? you say, have you yeah. read Karl Marx? <laughs> <laughs> And then I get this. Have you read some pamphlets at the STD clinic? <laughs> How much do you know about herpes? <laughs> That's me, I'm the model. Three Triple R. I'm hungry. I want something to eat. Something with a crunch and very sweet. It's time for Food Interlude here on Breakfast. It's time to say hello for the first time in a long time to Larissa Dubeski. How are you hello. going? Good, thank you. It's lovely to have you back. It's good to be back. <laughs> It's also good to be at the end of February because it's nearly the end of Febfast. Have you been Febfasting? Uh, it's been more honoured in the breach, to be perfectly okay. honest. So it's not like I'm here just gagging for a drink after 27 days of abstinence. I will be honest with you. So it's more a day on, day off proposition for me. Ah, good on you. It's all about moderation. Take it one day at a time. I like to binge drink and then be so hungover the next day I can't go near it. It's <laughs> That's very responsible of you. <laughs> Who runs the Feb fasting? Where did it I come honestly from? don't know. I think a lot of them came out of um, you know they're, they're about raising money for charity, but I'm not particularly sure about the origins of Feb fast or of October or what's the other one? Dry no, July. July, November. Well, look, they're coming oh. for every month. We just mm, have to think yeah. of something that rhymes with August. Ah, oh, yeah. You know, they're, they're dropping like flies. Can't Domino theory. In the yeah, drinking think, world. Think a bit. Mm, anyway. But okay, anyway, so I, I, I've been on a little mission to try and find good alternatives to alcoholic beverages. Oh, good on you. Which is about, it's less fun than it sounds. Because <laughs> it sounds like no fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, I realised how wedded I am and how most people are to just the notion of socialising with a drink in your hand. It's really hard to yes. do it I without... Find- yeah, because in Australia, I, I noticed that over, over, like, I have English friends come over and they're quite surprised that we don't have non-alcoholic beer. Oh. That's the one good thing I did find, though, Geraldine. We, I, there's a really great non-alcoholic beer that's um, a, an Indigenous guy on the Gold Coast is making it. And oh, it's wow. Called, it's called Sober and he, he, he spells it S-O-B-A-H. And the can's really cool. It looks pretty rock and roll. So oh, nice. you, oh. anybody else would think it's just like a normal can of beer, but it's zero alcohol. And the thing about beer is it actually stands up pretty well to no alcohol content because you've still got the hops and the mould. Mm. Whereas if you have no alcohol wine it essentially is grape juice where the sugars haven't fermented into alcohol so it's just a sugar bomb it's you know grape juice by another name so yeah i've never had a good non-alcoholic wine oh, yeah. there definitely is cooper's does a zero 
uh, alcohol beer as well because yeah. I, I had a friend Look, who was I'm drinking that when she was pregnant just because she mentally, just occasionally, not all the time, but she said on a Friday night she just needed to mentally feel like she was having a opening beer. a beer yeah. after a week at work. But this is like I, I found it like in, in the UK they were, kind of, they were available at most bars. You'd be able oh, to go right. to the bar and go, can I Ooh. get a, you know, an, a non-alcoholic beer. Huh. Mm. Yeah. It is actually starting to take off a little bit. So if you go to a bar in Melbourne, most of them, I mean, getting beyond mocktails, which, you know, I have a bit of a conceptual problem with. Um, there, You can find sort of analogue spirits these days and analogue spirits basically is a cool fancy name for saying it doesn't have alcohol in it. So there's this gin you can get. It's booze-free. It's English, actually. Um, and it actually tastes remarkably like the real thing. Well, how, do they, and, how do they make well, that? Well, it's actually a fairly similar process to real gin. So they do copper pot distillation for six weeks for all of the different botanicals that go mm. into it. So you do get this ginny flavour. Yeah. But it'll fool you for the first few sips and, well, fun. Speaking yeah. personally, I was going, wow, this is amazing. <laughs> but then I realised it's a more of an existential question about why I drink alcohol. And, you know, it does... Uh, you know, <laughs> <Yeah. Too early laughs> Am I thinking too hard about this? So I was just thinking it's it's about the buzz. So, yes. you know, that's why yeah. we drink. You want to get that little buzz. And if you're drinking something and you're not getting that buzz, eventually your brain just calls bullshit on the whole thing. <laughs> so it's not exactly this. Even, even though it's quite a good G&T, it's not the sort of thing you're going to sit on all night. So you yeah. might go and have one mm. and enjoy that. But, you know. That was my question, I guess. It, I mean, if you're looking for a substitute for having a glass of wine with a meal, do you want something that tastes like wine or do you just want something that's, you know, you're saying, well, I'm not having alcohol, I just have like a mm. drink. I that's mean, what I've come around to, I think. Instead of trying to pretend that I'm drinking alcohol, it's just a refreshing drink is a pretty good thing. So, mm. you know, even just tonic water with some mint and lemon in it is, is you know, a pretty good substitute if you have to go down that very sad path. So let's talk about mocktails. Mm. What, what's your issue with them? Oh, look, I, I just hate the word. Oh. I, ha- I hate any portmanteau. Uh, death to the portmanteau. Um, and I just think, yeah, mocktails are just a bit of a sad thing that restaurants use to try and when people aren't drinking mm. to try and get people to still spend up because right. I think one of the flow and effects yeah. of people going sober and you know people are increasingly going sober we're drinking less about half now what we were in at peak beer in 1977-78 back then people drank around 500 beers on average stubbies on average each year and that's yes. men women and children Whereas now it's something like 224. Well, you know, we're averaging, (laughs) thank you, Jeff. uh, And now we're down to, we've we've halved it. It's around 224 or 38 bottles of wine per person a year. That seems like a lot when you say it like that. Mm. But But considering in the restaurant game, margins, profit margins, they're very, very tight. And most restaurants make their majority of their profit off alcohol sales. So with more and more people going booze free, restaurants are finding it even harder. Hence the mocktail menu. Because, you know, a mocktail is... Well, you know, my 10-year-old daughter's into mocktails. It distresses me greatly because she <laughs> she wants to order a $15 drink. She's 10. Yeah. But, you know, she finds it very fancy and grown up. Are they worth that? Cause, but I must admit, sometimes I go for breakfast and if you order a juice at breakfast, like a fresh juice, that can be 10 bucks. Yeah. So is it fair that mocktails cost $15 or are they getting a little bit of... Cream, cream uh, on top. I think it's a bit of cream on top, yeah, basically, right. because it's not all juice. When they say mocktail, it's usually, you know, 90% base soda water with maybe right. a bit of 
non-alcoholic bitters thrown in and a bit of juice and a, you know, a few fancy native botanicals. If you can say a lemon myrtle at any stage in the process, <laughs> you can add $5 right there. So, yeah, I, I do think it's a little bit silly. But, you know, and, and it gets even sillier when you go to a restaurant, not naming names, but you can do sort of a mocktail tasting with your degustation. So they'll bring out a little mocktail. Oh, matching. Yeah, mocktail matching. Thank you. Mm. And so you can... That goes back to your philosophical question, doesn't it? Like, because if that was for cocktails, I would think that's great. But for some reason, the idea of doing it with mocktails just seems yeah. faintly like silly. Like how many different yeah. juices can you drink? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's just about drinking juice. I'm going out to drink juice. I used to like when I used to work in a bar, and you know people would would come in, and you know they go, "Oh, do you have any mocktails?" And I go, "Oh, I'll make something up for you." But there's only so many. Like we'd have the basic four basic juices and some, you know, soda water and all lemonade and stuff. Pineapple juice and lemonade. What a sweet combo. Put a bit of grenadine in it. There you go. Eight dollars for you. Someone suggested to order an Arnold Palmer, which is an iced tea and lemonade. Invented by the popular American golfer Arnold Palmer. I've never heard of that. Me neither. Uh, so is that bus actually, if, does it actually affect restaurants? Do they kind of go, okay, we're going to have to prepare for February as a, you well, know? Well, anecdotally, I have, I, I've had restaurateurs whinge to me about, you know, we hate these months. It's, you know, and, and like I was saying before, these months are taking over. So now we've got three official months where you can say I'm doing dry July or whatever. Um, and, yeah, people are feeling the pinch. I and think also people are very vocal about it when they are doing Feb Fast. Like yes. if, when they go into a pub with their friends, there's very much they're at the bar and they'll always say, oh, I'm doing Feb Fast. It's like a badge of honour. Yeah. But, but I also think it helps you get through. I had a weekend recently where I chose not to drink only because I was driving a lot and I thought, I'm just going to give up drinking because I've got to get around to all these events, which I kind of rarely do. But I felt like the only way I could get through the weekend was by constantly telling people mid-conversation, I'm not drinking. Yes. And I don't know why. You know, maybe it was because I felt like maybe my personality had changed or <laughs> I wanted them to appreciate that. Yeah, I don't know I what I was want doing. People to acknowledge how good I'm being for not <laughs> drinking. Yeah, maybe that's what it's all them. about. It is something of an out of body experience, though, to be the only sober person in a room of people who are drinking. Not people yes. who are rolling drunk, but just people who just have taken that edge off the social anxiety and all the rest of it. Mm. And jokes get so much funnier. Um, it is quite weird. Do, does, for someone you know who eats a lot of food or whatever, does like having a glass of wine? Does it make a difference to you? Like when you're having, when you think of having a good meal, do you always imagine yes. having a nice wine with it? Yes, I do. I, a, a nice glass of wine always goes so very well with a nice restaurant. <laughs> she <laughs> says at the end of Febfast. <laughs> Roll on, drink up December then. <laughs> Down with Febfast. Drink up December. <laughs> Not wait until then. <laughs> Better than drunky December. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Larissa Diveski. It's been great to have you back. Three Triple R. Comeback is a new novel out through Scribe. Its author is Lindsay Tanner, former Labor MP for the State of Melbourne. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks for having me. This is your second Jack Van Doon novel, and I'm conscious of repeating questions that I'm sure you must have been asked a lot the first time around. But I have to ask, what leads a former finance minister to a second career as a crime novelist? Was this something you'd always wanted to do? Uh, I'm not sure it's a career, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> although you never know. Uh, it's more, I'd written quite a lot of non-fiction over the years, some while I was a politician, some before, and I'd always wondered about what it's like to write fiction. 
because I saw it as a very different thing, a bit like craft versus art. Mm. Non-fiction is craft and the fiction is art. So I thought I'd give it a go. And so I dabbled for quite a while with the first one, just playing around. I'd leave it alone for a while and then come back to it. And it was triggered by imagining the character and gradually developing him in my mind and building on that and uh, ended up doing one that, Henry Rosenblum at Scribe Judge was good enough to give a go and publish and it went okay. So um, after a few years I've managed to produce another one. (laughs) It's a very modest way of putting it. Tell us about your protagonist then, Jack Van Doon. He's not exactly the typical crime thriller man of action, is he? No, he's certainly not a Hollywood hero type. Um, Jack is late 50s. He's one of those classic left-behind people. He's single, he's living in a crappy flat in Brunswick not very far from where we are here and uh, he's he's reasonably smart character and he's got some natural abilities but he's a bit slack basically and so he's drifted he's really never picked up any great skills uh, or marketable skills he's bummed around in different things and he's ended up driving cabs for a while and uh, so he's a bit bitter and twisted about the world and he's got that typical sort of soft bigotry that a lot of people of his age group have got. And so I've used him as a vehicle both in the first novel and in Comeback to explore what a lot of those issues like multiculturalism, homelessness and so on look like from through the lens of a person who's naturally uh, a bit sort of bigoted and grumpy uh, and to try and see how he responds when he's actually confronted with a few realities. When I've been talking about this book and trying to give people a sense of what it was like, the reference I've been using is Shane Maloney's Murray Whelan books, similarly politically tinged inner city stories featuring fairly hapless main characters. Was Maloney someone that you'd been reading? Was that a reference point for you? Uh, look, not really. I have read all of Shane's books and I know him uh, and hugely admire him, and I'd never imagine that I could be as good as he is. And and there there are some slight differences. He's he's quite a bit funnier than I am to start with. Um, and there's a there's a little bit more didactic kind of political message in mind. Uh, he's an incredibly acute observer. His portrayal of the Labor Party in Victoria in the 80s and into the 90s is unbelievably acute. Um, quite embarrassing too for those of us who are part of it. <laughs> uh, but, uh, the one novel that I have thought of that, that um, uh, which, believe it or not, I haven't read but I've seen the movie, uh, that I think is a bit similar to the, the terrain that I'm tilling is Death in Brunswick. Okay. Uh, that's because... Um, the stuff I put out is technically called crime. I, I have this theory that there are two categories in fiction. There's the A graders, and that's called literature, and B graders, it's called crime. You know, so that as long as there is some kind of criminal activity in there somewhere, if it's not good enough to be classified as literature, it's called crime. Uh, so that's how come I'm crime. Um, it's uh, it's very unfortunate, but. Uh, um, the, the crime is not the key thing. It's really the device to drive the story and the awakening along. Uh, so you're right. It's not you know it's not Inspector Plod uh, out there um, you know valiantly battling the forces of evil as most crime novels ultimately are. Uh, but um, I, I love Shane Maloney's books, and I would never dream of being compared with them. Uh, 
uh, I think Murray Whelan is one of the all-time great Australian characters. Well, let's talk about the forces of evil in this book. It features some fairly um, wicked property developers. As we said, you were the MP for Melbourne for many years. Melbourne is beset by property development. Uh, other developers in real life as evil as the ones portrayed in your book? In the 1970s, I suspect yes. Uh, I don't think so now. Uh, the the world is quite different and I've used something of a caricature there and uh, created a set of circumstances that are, I emphasise of course fiction, I do remind people <laughs> who <laughs> may get a bit upset and want to sue me or something that this is actually fiction uh, so to a degree the property developer dodgy politics stuff is uh, pretty much a reflection of what Melbourne was like in the 1970s. There were some huge scandals in the early 1970s. We have had one or two issues in recent times, of course, with ministers and some rather dubious behaviour in places like Phillip Island uh, that are connected with property development. Um, but it, it is fiction and it's designed to you know, create uh, a set of conflicts and issues and dramas for Jack to deal with. You're kind of giving voice to uh, an element of society that doesn't often get a voice and the book looks at the changing kind of social structure in suburbs like Brunswick where we have a kind of two classes of people now, a working class who are the old school Brunswick people and the the middle class wealthier people. How much has um, the changing face of Brunswick I think impacted I guess the people who do have these smaller voices is people like Jack. I think this is a really important issue to me. I've described these books as being about the other inner city. So we all get used to reading about the inner city as basically a bunch of well-heeled cafe latte drinking, smashed avocado eating, etc. you know, the stereotype. And there's some truth to that stereotype, unfortunately. Uh, But there is still a very large population of people living in the inner city uh, in some cases, you know, a significant number of homeless people, but also people living in what are still pretty ordinary blocks of private flats uh, that um, maybe uh, disability pensioners or, uh, you know, people in low-paid jobs like driving cabs. And in a sense, what I, part of what I'm trying to do here is actually remind those high-income earning, well-heeled professionals who I think it's a slight understatement to call them the middle class Mm. Um, they're actually the new ruling class Mm. that's the reality Uh, and to to remind them that there are people living in the same street as them and and, or in the high-rise flats nearby who are amongst the most disadvantaged people in australia and they they barely have any contact with them generally and you i mean you held the seat of melbourne and then retired in 2010 and since then labor haven't won back that seat. Do you think that um, had you st- stuck around, they would have been able to retain that seat? Or do you think that the, that the seat of Melbourne has changed? Uh, I'm embarrassed to, to admit that uh, an objective assessment of the 2010 election <laughs> would, would tell you that Adam Bant would have won the seat had I been the Labor candidate. Yeah. Uh, and the reason I hold that view is that the swing to the Greens was so big that although inevitably as a long-term incumbent I, I would have probably managed to moderate that swing, uh, I don't think I could have moderated enough to hold on to the seat. Now, you never know. Uh, these things are always hard to assess. Uh, but the the nature of green voting is that it is almost entirely a product of tertiary education. 
So the typical green voter has been to university or is currently associated with the university. Uh, it's not 100%, but it's a very, very high correlation. And across the Western world, the new core political divide, which is, is disrupting politics all around the Western world, is between the university educated and those who aren't. And so a lot of the undercurrent in this novel is about the collision between the values, worldviews, behaviours of those two groups. And this is the key reason why the two major political parties in Australia have tended to become less and less coherent, because both of them are split down the middle by what is the new fundamental divide in Western society. But there'd be very few people in the... Um federal parliament from the Labor caucus who don't have a tertiary education now. So why can't Labor appeal to tertiary educated voters? The problem is that they still try to appeal to the non-tertiary educated uh, and and quite rightly, in my view. Uh, <coughs> your preface there is absolutely spot on. One of the wake-up calls I had late in my career was to realise that I was a member of a Labor cabinet, the erstwhile representatives of the less well-off and less educated, and all 20 members of our cabinet were university educated. And that was pretty confronting realisation. So I, I think the, the core problem Labor has had is that it still has a very large base of support from amongst those who aren't university educated, but the active elite of the Labor Party particularly MPs, but also, of course, staffers and stuff like that are overwhelmingly university-educated and people haven't woken up to just what a difference that makes because the worldview and opportunities and choices and prospects for most people who are not tertiary-educated now are basically diminishing or flatlining, and we've seen this with stagnating wages, uh, whereas, of course, the opportunities for people uh, who are tertiary-educated are improving and increasing so there is a big dilemma here for parties like Labor and it's it's all around the world. You've been out of politics now for nearly a decade you're writing novels and publishing do you miss politics? Look not really uh, obviously I'm a political animal I, I still follow it a fair degree and in a lot of the roles that I now uh, find myself in my understanding of the political landscape and my uh, knowledge of individuals and my friendships with individuals are relevant to my work uh, but I, I think the nature of what it consists of has deteriorated it's become so much a vaudeville production and so much about posturing and pretending that it's not the world I want to inhabit you know I, I got in there when it was you know, it was Paul Keating versus John Howard and John Hewson uh, there were really big debates and issues uh, there were you had the emergence of the greens so you had issues like marbo and the republic and uh, some big economic issues emerging out of the recession in the early 90s uh, big debates about job creation and work opportunities and so on and <clears throat> that those things are sort of still those kind of things are still floating around there but more and more the dominant 
dynamic in contemporary politics is about the theatre, and that's not my game. Well, why, why is that, though? I mean, we are now facing the prospect of a climate change catastrophe. There's no shortage of big issues out there. In fact, the urgency of tackling these issues has never been more extreme. Why are politicians incapable of doing uh, it? Uh, look, it's, uh, there's a number of things. Uh, I think that breakdown of the tribal bases of the different parties is a key factor, uh, and the emergence of parties like One Nation, which has drawn people mostly from the Conservatives but also from Labor, who, who typically are the least connected, the least engaged in the, the political process. Uh, that's changed the dynamic of politics, the changes in media. So one of the downsides of the emergence of social media and the digital competition for traditional media is that the space to be a bit high tone and serious that most media used to have has been competed away. And you can see this, have a look at the digital versions of the newspapers and compare them with the printed versions. The mm. digital versions are basically the National Enquirer in an Australian version. You know, pretty soon it'll be Elvis Alive and Living in Minnesota <laughs> or B-52 Found on Moon. And there's a reason for that. Mm. Uh, so there's various forces have driven this change and it's again. It's you can see it all around the world. Uh, quickly before we let you go, can we talk footy? Um, <laughs> I was wondering when we get to that. <laughs> Let's talk about my beloved Bombers. How are they going to go this season? Well, we're pretty optimistic, and I think the key thing from the club leadership point of view is we've got ourselves in the best shape we've been in for a long time. Now that doesn't automatically translate into results on the field. We've had plenty of experience of that and so have many mm-hmm. other sides and the competition is more even and unpredictable than I've ever seen it and I've been following it since the early 1960s. Uh, so where we start with uh, a lot of optimism, a lot of energy we saw last year that these things can go off the rails pretty quickly, uh, but the great thing about last year was that we hung together, fought our way through and ended up coming home with a wet sail. Uh, so I think we're in good shape uh, and I'm hopeful we'll achieve big things over the next few years. I feel good about it too. <laughs> but don't, don't get ahead of yourself. That's, that's yeah, a great Essendon disease. We're, we're very good at getting ahead of ourselves. I think it's so. a football disease. And, well, true, it is a football disease. And that novel is called A Comeback. It's out now through Scribe Publishing. We've been talking to its author, Lindsay Tanner. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, folks. Three. Triple. Time for Feature Creatures here on Breakfasters this week. We're joined from Simon Hinckley from the museum. Hello, Simon Hinckley. Good morning, everybody. Good, Good morning. morning. You know what I was thinking about that thing because we're discussing, we're reassessing all the themes today. Uh, is it the, I feel like it's not representative of bugs. There's I no was, bug noises in there. I was just there. listening to that and I really, really like it, but it's like, I suppose you could go cicadas, but... They're really annoying to some people. Oh, was there cicadas in there? No, there wasn't, but oh, there we could wasn't. go cicada calls. Yeah. yeah. Well, should we add some cicadas to that? <laughs> sure. Why Just not? Anyway. In the background, there's some... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe the insect calls aren't the way to go because, yeah, they put people off. It's <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. So what disgusting things are happening in the world of bugs? Well, the, I actually thought about this from listening to um, something that you were all talking about regarding lollies and chocolates, and it nearly made me drive up Hoddle Street because you're talking about what should we not have. Oh. And Sarah and Geraldine both said lose the boost bar. 
I was outraged. No, and the, boost bar. I would crawl across broken glass for a boost bar. <laughs> and the fact that both of you said get rid of it, I was very, very angry. And so that just. You're, I feel like I knew people would get angry about that. That's you why did, I said I it. Yeah. Like Simon is the only man in Australia buying boost bars. <laughs> nah, I know. Single-handedly keeping the boost bar alive. Bloody love them. Really? Like, They're nah. amazing. And I just couldn't believe that not just one, but 66% of you went boost bars have to go. So thank you, Jeff. <laughs> thank you, Jeff. I have no opinion about boost bars one way or the other. But anyway, so thinking about, you know, what not to eat and what makes you unattractive and stuff like that. Um, and, of course, no one mentioned Turkish Delight, which is the real, the other crime of the story that no one said Turkish Delight need to go. They're they, too obvious. They have, well, they have no place in but the box I of chocolates. Love, but yeah, mm. I love Turkish Delight. I don't love the, the version of it you buy you, you get from gross. Cadbury, though, no. because they're a bit kind of overly sweet. Well, that's sort mm. of, I guess, where I'm, yeah. yeah. So, okay, we're all, all on that. No, no, I'll take a, yeah. a Turkish Delight over a Boost Bar any day. <sighs> Anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> on to bugs. Yes, yeah, so, talking about chocolate all day. Um, so, so I was thinking about how not to get eaten, and I know that we've talked about things like um, spiders looking like bird poo. Uh, we've talked about beetles that can spray um, boiling hot acid, but I just thought we'd talk about some of the other ways of not getting eaten. Um, one of my favourites, because it involves the least action, is the old drop and play dead. So, you know, you're a beetle oh, in a flower, yes. and you suddenly go, oh, no, there's a spider in here, the camouflage spider, it's about to grab me, the bird comes in, you drop land in the leaf litter and you just lie there. And that's surprisingly effective whether or not you're a spider or a person looking for that beetle really? when it drops into the leaf litter. Great strategy. So, oh. so why wouldn't the spider just go after the dead the dead bug? Well, the spider, generally if you're a camouflage spider, you're a sit-and-wait ambush predator. So you're in the flower and you're waiting for something to come to you and if it drops down to the ground and you actually leave the flower to find that beetle that's down below, you're going to make yourself more uh. vulnerable to something that eats you. So it's that everything's eating everything. So often your camouflage is the same colour as the flower. So if you leave that flower, you're suddenly this white spider climbing down a green stem and everything goes, oh... That'll, you'll do. Yum, yum, yum. Got it. Yeah, so drop and, drop and uh, play dead. The old eye spots on the wings is another really good ah, one. That, that old uh, classic. The old classic of the eye spots. What, what, what is the oh, okay. What's the classic eye spots no, on the wings? The eyes on the wings yeah. where it looks like eyes. Oh, yeah. oh, so I like, thought you were saying ice, ice blocks on the Oh, they are also good. <laughs> but no, the eye, sorry, eye spots, I yeah. enunciate better. Um, <laughs> so... You're a bird and you're going for this beautiful, big, tasty moth or butterfly and one second you're following a butterfly and then the next second on the underside of the... on the backside of the wings, you suddenly get a pair of eyes that are incredibly impressive. Like, there are uh, moths that are called, like, owl head moths and they really look like, for a split second, mm. you go, oh, that could be an owl. And so it just gives the, the moth or the butterfly that split second as the predator goes, oh, hang on, have I misjudged this? And it's off into the vegetation. Are they really that... Can they really see that poorly, that they go from chasing a butterfly to thinking the butterfly has transformed into an owl? I guess it's it's just that thing of everything's acting on... The, it's a very fast process. Yeah. It, exactly. And when you suddenly... It's like, you know, if you something pops up in front of you, you're, you're it's in that instant fight or flight. Huh. So you're honed in on the butterfly and all of a second there's a big pair of eyes in your face. So it's just, it might only be a split second, but it's just enough for maybe that thing to get into the vegetation or get under bark or something like that. Right. So, yeah. Geez, they really do look like owls. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, my new favourite, uh, well, it's up there with the drop dead, is um, the use of the faecal shield, which I just, I don't think you can get into a conversation often enough. Mm, tell um, me more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so what these, um, a faecal shield or a faecal parasol, if you like. Some oh, yes. Oh, parasol. Oh, who has to be isn't it? That is class, yeah. Oh, the parasol yeah. over the shield. Yeah, a so umbrella. A umbrella, <laughs> yes. That's all you need in the day. <laughs> 
So these um, these beetle larvae, um, they're sitting on the leaves and they're, they're eating away and they're quite vulnerable because they're soft and fairly defenceless. So what they do is um, as they... So it's a mix of as the grubs shed their skin, so you, you grow, you split your skin, you get bigger, you have that old skin behind. And what some of them do is they will make a combination of the shed skins and also faecal material and they will actually be able to move that so it's attached to the end of their abdomen and they can move that around so if you come and harass the front end they can bring the shield or the parasol over and they're like no no no, off you go um so they can sort of push you off with it they can hit you with it which isn't that effective and i mean it does make you want to go yes yeah it's a shoot slap in the face <laughs> Yeah, that's why I like it so much. It's, yeah, it's really, really and good. That, that works, does it? Well, the other thing that they do, which is, is yeah, very... Yeah, just put that in your back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> the next time, Jeff. The other thing that makes it quite effective is that um, if these uh, larvae are feeding on, like, uh, leaves that have, like, a toxin or uh, maybe poisonous or, or um, irritating, they can actually take those compounds and that will be excreted in their, their faecal matter. So if you were to go, look, I don't care that you've got a faecal parasol, I'm going to eat you anyway, mm. that's going to be unpleasant tasting because of the toxins and that sort of stuff. So um, it seems to work quite well because there's a lot of beetles out there using it. Oh. Mm. And that general strategy of like making yourself poisonous or, mm. or whatever, does that work? Because I always thought like, well, that might work for the species, but it probably doesn't work too well for you, does exactly. it? Exactly. That's, that's what it's about. You lose mm-hmm. your right to, to pass on your genes, but in doing so, your fellow members of that species will not get eaten by that bird next time because it's like the bird goes, oh, that was disgusting. There it is again. So, yeah, uh, it's, it's that thing of sacrifices for the greater good. Yeah. Right. So you don't there, want to get eaten, but are there whole sort of species of beetles that or bugs that no one else will eat because they're sort of known to be poisonous? There, there's a. It's a constantly evolving. Basically, they, they call it like an arms race between you know plants and insects. So plants are always developing new things to prevent them being eaten by insects, and then insects are adapting to those changes in the plants, and predators are adapting to. So basically. If there's a food source, something will evolve to eat it and then whatever's being eaten will evolve something to try and put the majority of things off. So as far as I know, there's there's nothing that is un- inedible by something else, but it's um, you can obviously minimise the number of things that are going to be eating you by making yourself unpleasant, irritating, toxic, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. And the other one that, um, when I was a kid, I remember Spitfires. I don't know if you ever remember. Yes. Yes. I was obsessed with being spat at by a Spitfire. I was quite disappointed when I, like, as a kid, you get told about Spitfires and you go, oh, so what are they actually spitting in your eye? Obviously, they're not spitting fire, but are they? And then you sort of see the reality and it's like a, a group of caterpillars all sort of clumped together. And what's confusing about Spitfires is they're called Spitfires. They look like caterpillars. They're actually sawflies, but sawflies are actually a type of wasp. So it's quite a confusing group. Um, oh, wow. It doesn't make it helpful, but um, basically all that they can do is they can like sort of vomit up or exude a bit of a, a noxious, irritating substance because they're feeding on eucalyptus leaves. So there was a there was a gum tree at our farm mm. that hung over the dam that we couldn't go near because it was covered in Spitfires. Yeah. But I, I was really under the impression as a child that we couldn't even walk under it. Like we wouldn't even walk because they'd spit at us. Yeah, I think I don't know whether parents did it or we just imagined more than was with the reality. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, yeah. So you could have been in that dam all the time. Like if one drops in your eye, that's not great. Okay, yeah. But if you eat them, that's not great. But you're unlikely to do that. Mm. Yeah. So again, making yourself unpleasant to eat, and they'll also sort of um, if you ever got close to them, often they'll all sort of start waving at you and tapping their abdomen. So it's a bit like you know, well, back Watch off. Out. Yeah, I'm going to dribble some eucalyptus oil at you rather than spit in your eye. <laughs> In your, general, in your direction. general direction, yes. You'll be disgusted and walk away. Yep. Huh, Spitfires. Yes. Uh, um, yes, the insects, they're quite um, 
gross as always. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Simon Hinkley. Lovely. Uh, before you... There is an event. Oh, oh there is. Oh, oh, yes. Thank you both. Yeah. Tell no- us about Nocturnal. Nocturnal tomorrow <laughs> night at the museum. Uh, I, it's linked to Fashion Week and the Avalanches are DJing. Yeah, and or- Kate's playing as well, I believe. Oh, yeah. fun. Yeah. It's going to be a huge one. So it's going to be big, I think. So yeah. Yeah, check the website and um, there'll be – uh, there's no bug talks this time, but there'll be uh, people talking probably with a fashion a fashion bent. So oh. You know what You know what would be a good fashion accessory? A faecal parasol. <laughs> <laughs> See you next week, Simon. Thank you. Three triple R. On Hate is the title of a new volume out in Melbourne Uni Publishing's series, Little Books on Big Ideas. Its author is the former Race Discrimination Commissioner, Tim Supomasan. Welcome to Breakfasters. Great to be with you. Good morning. In the book you write, for five years while I was Race Discrimination Commissioner, there were few days when I didn't have to deal with hate. For those who haven't read the book, can you give us some examples of what you had to deal with in that position? Because it's quite striking. Hate was a frequent occurrence in the job that I had. We would have to deal with reports of racial hatred and vilification that were brought to our attention by members of the public. We would have to deal with some pretty nasty correspondence. Some of that was deeply personal and and threatening to me directly. So in the first few weeks of being in the job, for example, I received a, a, a death threat in the form of a few sheets of angry scrawl and a picture of myself with a noose around my head Um, and and I was expecting that to be fair I knew that some of my predecessors had copped some very nasty stuff one for example had a bomb discovered under her house um, by by police Um, so this was a very real uh, threat that you had to contend with and think about when you're in the business of anti-racism and human rights. There are many elements out there in our society who would want people to shut up about uh, racism, would not want anyone to uh, call it out, and they seek to intimidate through threats and through nastiness. How do you handle that on a, on a day-to-day basis? Like, you you know, you would receive it, and it, you appear like it's just like water off a, dock, a duck's back, but really, how much did it affect you and how did you handle it? Well, you, you do need to think very hard about about it at the start, right? Mm. Um, so, so I think I had a, a good preparation for some of this because uh, in, in the few years that I wrote a weekly column for my sins in The Australian, uh, <laughs> I, I got hate mail pretty regularly <laughs> from the readers of the newspaper and that, and that was good professional training in, in, in one sense. Um, you, you, you've got to be able to get some distance from it when it's your job um, mm. and I think I was in a position of relative luxury in one sense. Um, ordinary people who go about their business, who get subjected to threats or vilification, don't have the luxury of putting that distance on things. Whereas when it's your job as a, as a, as a public office holder, I think you, uh, you, you can manage and compartmentalise things in a different way. You do also say in the book that life gets boring without hatred. What do you mean? Well, there's hate and there's hate. Uh, I think we all feel hate. Um, just in the, the ordinary use of the word, we'd refer to ourselves hating this or hating that, whether it's music or your neighbours or um, politicians uh, and, and, and celebrities. Uh, and, and, and I think we're always going to have to manage hate in our lives. And, and sometimes you can harness hate. You can sublimate 
hate and channel it into doing good things. I mean, there's nothing wrong with hating tyranny or injustice or bigotry. When hatred becomes a problem is when it takes the form of things like racial hatred, when you hate an entire group, when you uh, entertain ideas of dealing out violence to others, when you uh, think about certain groups based on prejudices and stereotypes, and that's when hate becomes a real problem. But you've got to uh, understand too, I think the world would be a very dull place if we uh, all agreed and and all got along. There's got to be some friction in life for it to be interesting. Uh, The most striking part of the book for me was the passage where you described 2018 as the year that public discourse in Australia fundamentally shifted. What makes you say that and what do you think was motivating that shift last year? Yeah, I think there was. I think there was a shift. Uh, I think it's open to debate whether it was fundamental, or whether you can trace it back to uh, to other moments or junctures in in recent history. Um, but I think of the start of 2018 and the summer and the panic that was uh, really stirred up around African gangs and crime here in Melbourne, for the most part. When uh, to, to to refresh people's memories. Uh, Peter Dutton said that people in Melbourne were afraid to go out to dinner because of African gangs or something to that effect. Uh, it really set the tone for the rest of the year and you, you, you look through what happened in political debate and you look at uh, what happened with Fraser Anning uh, giving a speech referring to a final solution to the immigration problem. You think of Pauline Hanson moving a motion about it being okay to be white, which is a well-known white supremacist slogan and having... 20-odd government senators support that. Um, That, to me, reflects a a significant development. It reflects a mainstreaming of racist uh, hate in a certain way, uh, which is to say that uh, ideas associated with white nationalism and white supremacism aren't only just being entertained in our national parliament, they're being uh, supported in our, in our parliament, including by those on the government side. You gave an interview in The Guardian recently in which you uh, said that the Morrison government is already campaigning on fear coming into the 2019 potential race election and all that that would involve. If we are headed into a race election, how do you think we counter that? Well, nothing certain yet. I, I hope that we don't end up in a race election, but uh, we've got to be pretty realistic about where things have been heading and if you look at the debate around the, the Medivac bill and asylum seekers and the language that's been used by members of the government in the past week or so you know talking about the beast of asylum seeker boats being awakened or talk about rapists and murderers and pedophiles being uh, set free in Australian streets uh, that to me says that the government has flicked the switch to fear and if it believes that it's going to get traction I'm deeply concerned that there may be an escalation of fear into more overt and blatant uh, racist hate. Uh, At the moment it's a pretty loud dog whistle but it could become more explicit if the government feels that it's it's getting political traction from it. How we combat it? Well, uh, you know, it's it's hard to combat in the immediate term or to see a retreat from that if you've got political leaders and political parties intent on prosecuting race politics. Clearly there is a calculation uh, about nationalist populism being politically potent 
I think the, those on the centre right of Australian politics have looked at global developments like the rise of Donald Trump and, and particularly given the tendency to import American culture wars into Australian politics, there's a, an ideological inclination to go down uh, that route. So if we are going to combat it, and I, and I believe we should, uh, we should be speaking out against it, uh, but we may not see a change in the immediate term. This is going to involve a long contest and a long uh, political battle. But I mean, how much is the media responsible here? Because we see time and time again in polls that Australians don't feel particularly compelled about, say, the asylum seeker issue when they rate their concerns in elections. Uh, domestic concerns rate a lot higher than their, say, fear of asylum seekers, yet... Uh, the politicians keep returning to it and the media keep reporting on it. So does the media have a role it has to play differently here? Yes, and it's hard for there to be a change here because there are sections of the media that are monetising racial hatred. Mm. This is part of their business model. Uh, and, and, and it's clear to me that the fracturing of mainstream media has led to many media outlets working much harder to cling on to what are shrinking audiences and they're using conflict... They're using division to do that. Um, now, can we can we see a change? Uh, I think that's an open question. Uh, but I hope uh, that 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 we can uh, have a national debate where at least our political leaders do not give encouragement uh, to media to monetize hatred in that way. But unfortunately, all too often, the political and media class are in cahoots on this. Uh, you write a lot in the book about Section 18 of the Racial Discrimination Act, the law under which Andrew Bolt was brought to court for his article on so-called fair-skinned Aborigines. Some people might say that the Bolt case demonstrates the problem with Section 18 in that Bolt lost that case legally, but politically he won big time in that his career skyrocketed in the aftermath of that um conviction. How do you respond to that? I mean, why would people want to go to Section 18 after they see what happened with Bolt, who managed to monetize this into, you know, taking his career to stellar, stellar, to a stellar trajectory? And you, you've, you've hit on a, 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 an important issue here, Jeff, uh, in that uh, there's been no doubt in my mind that people have been deterred from making complaints under the federal legislation about racial hatred and vilification because they have seen what has happened to complainants in the past? Uh, n- not only the, the the effects that it would would have on uh, increasing the prominence of certain commentators, but you think of uh, uh, people who have been uh, clearly targeted by outlets like the Australian for lodging a complaint under Section 18C. Um, however, I, I, I would still say, and this is a strong view that I would hold, that it's important that we we do have laws and maintain laws against racial vilification. We need to have something that people can use to hold others to account. And we need to have legislative standards which make very clear that racial hatred is not acceptable in our society. Uh, but the, the Bolt case is a, is a good case study for understanding how the law actually works. Those who have campaigned against Section 18C have used it to suggest that it stifles freedom of speech or expression. Uh, if you go through what actually happened, though, I don't think you you can reasonably say that. Uh, you know, Andrew Bolt was not convicted of anything. Uh, the law is a civil law, not a criminal law. Um, all that the court ordered Andrew Bolt to do and, and his publisher to do was uh, not to reproduce the newspaper article and to put up a corrective notice in the Herald Sun, but the newspaper was still permitted to keep it on 
uh, keep the article in online archives for research and historical purposes. And it uh, goes to show that you, in order to be caught under the law under 18C, you've really got to put your back into it. Um, and the court found in that case that uh, Mr Bolt had combined errors of fact, distortions of the truth, and had used deliberately inflammatory language. And it was the combination of those three things which meant that he didn't enjoy the protection of free speech, which also exists in the Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, you say that the Morrison government is running a scare campaign in the lead-up to the election. At the moment, it seems from the polls that Labor is quite likely to win uh, this election, but they are playing a very dead bat on some of these issues I saw today. The opposition saying our uh, policy on refugees is essentially the same as that of the government. Should Labor be doing more to combat the possibility of a race election? Yeah, I, I, I would hope that they come out all guns blazing to prevent a race election from happening. Um, and, and I think uh, time will tell. Uh, clearly, uh, when you have a shift in the polls, it's still early to know whether there's been a shift in the polls as a result of the, the Medivac and asylum seeker debate. Uh, one poll done by Ipsos certainly indicates that there may have been a shift. Uh, you probably need to see a few more polls before you can establish a clear trend. But regardless of the politics of it, uh, I would hope that we don't return to, uh, to, to, to the kind of politics we had a decade or so ago when uh, we saw a tamper in 2001 and a conventional wisdom emerge around the need for uh, punishing asylum seekers in order to uh, defend national sovereignty. That's not a place that I would want to uh, see our debate return to. The book is On Hate. It's out through Melbourne University Publishing. We've been talking to its author, Tim Supomasan. Thanks very much. Thank you. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to Breakfasters. Uh, so um, I'm introducing a new segment. What, is, are you no, okay, Jeff? There's a f- mosquito flying about. Oh, okay. Oh, it's it's dirty. No, I don't know where it's gone. <laughs> well, well we're all going to die. Broadcasting for a swamp. The fa- your, fa- your face, <laughs> for there's a mosquito flying about, is the same as my headphones aren't working, is the same as there might be a murderer in the studio. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's the same as I can't, I don't think, are we meant to be on air now? <laughs> No, I, I have real problems with my resting face. Yes, yes. resting bitch face. <laughs> yes, but but yours it, is resting. No, you have problems with. Um... I can't control it. It's like you know, you're trying to pretend to be interested in. I'm not. not. <laughs> <laughs> that, that didn't come out the way I meant. But you know, like if you're on stage or whatever. Yes. Anyway, I don't think many people can control their resting face. No, I don't think they can. Oh, you're, I... you just been particularly obsessed with the fact that you can't control yours. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, I'm, on with your story. I'm introducing um, a new segment. Oh yeah, um, called Show and Tell. Now, we'll uh, just do it occasionally and yeah, randomly. Yeah, just so if you um, don't get nervous, this is going to be what it is all the time. Okay, it's not a new Wednesday. No, Jesus so Christ. I um, I never talk about Wednesday ever again. <laughs> uh, and now I, we've talked about this off air. The problem is that we keep on forgetting. About bringing something in for yes. show and tell, it's always oh yeah, oh, oh, yes, that's oh, yeah, show and tell would be fun. I've done yeah. show and tell since year three. Wow, that's a yeah, it's a long time. Yeah, so uh, but I 
I actually remembered this morning and I thought, oh, I'll text you guys. Um, except, you know, there was, Jeff, I didn't text you because I knew I would be able to send Sarah a text saying, just saying, show and tell. And I, you've just I just saw the mosquito. <laughs> Sorry. It's it's disconcerting. Well, it's disconcerting because I, I know they love me. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Uh, that can be a new segment. Each week we just release an insect into the studio. <laughs> Watch it fly about. So, uh. I, I, so I, set the, I knew I'd be able to send a text to Sarah just saying show and tell. And I knew... Jeff, I wasn't that confident that I would be able to leave it there for you. If I sent a text to you at five o'clock in the morning just saying show and tell, I figured it might need a bit more info and I didn't have I didn't have time or could be bothered writing any more than show and tell. So I didn't bother with you. Sorry. So Jeff hasn't got any show and tell. You can bring something in another time. Like maybe awesome. your um shoe polishing. Your shoe box. buffer. Yeah. Your expensive <laughs> antique shoe buffer. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's, very, it's, it's quite the antique. It's worth a lot of money. Uh, did you? What did you bring? Did you bring oh, something yeah. in? It's in here. Ooh. It's in my glasses case. It's a piece of paper. Oh. So I brought in a piece of paper. What do you wow. think it is? It's a letter. It's a letter. Can you hear that? Yes. What does it Ooh. say? It's a satisfying sound. What does it say? Well, what would you get? Do you think it's an old letter because it's quite it does yellow? Look quite it does, yellow. Yes. Yeah, and it might even be like. Oh, yeah, I've seen the mosquito. I don't, don't think it is a mosquito. I think it's a little moth thing. Yeah. It's moving too fast. So I brought in this piece of paper that I found in a box about mm. a year ago when I was throwing stuff out, and I just thought it was really cool. Oh, uh, yeah. So it's a bit of paper, as you can see here. Oh, yes. Is that, it's got is a that recipe a on recipe? it. Recipe, yeah. Yeah, and I think I've told you about this before, but I thought I'd bring it in so you could have a look at it. So I've got this brown piece of paper that has a recipe that looks like it's been typed in it, typed on it, but stamped on it is a stamp that says Macquarie Island, the 11th of August, 1968, <gasps> radio it's office. It's from Antarctica. It's from Antarctica. Oh. So this is a recipe that I found in a box that would have belonged to my dad because my dad lived in Antarctica for two years. Um, and... We just uh, some of his old stuff I was going through. Wow! And so this is from 1968. This has been in Antarctica. It smells a bit got salty. The smell of ice. <laughs> it does. It smells a bit salty. Really? And, but what I love about it, it's also got his handwriting on it, and <gasps> it says coffee liqueur. So this is a uh, this is a drink. an espresso martini. This is an espresso <laughs> martini from Antarctica. from Antarctica in 1968. Oh wow! Can I have a look? Yeah, I you can. S- oh, just because I want to smell it, it. He's also got a little note. Um, Oh, wow. Maybe it doesn't smell that salty. Maybe it's just my fingers. Now I think about that. it. Oh, no, yeah, that's your hands, mate. Okay, right. <laughs> <laughs> it's all that salt oh. I've been using. <laughs> that's funny. Can we read out? Do you want to read out the recipe first and then his little note at the end? Yeah. <laughs> uh, good drop, it's called. It's called good oh, drop. Yeah. Like a good drop. Uh, goodies. One half gallon of water. Uh, 20 heap teaspoons of instant coffee. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is very... Yeah. <laughs> One and a half cups of brown sugar. Uh, is it oh, three ounces of vanilla essence? And uh, one pint of rum. <laughs> pint of rum? <laughs> yes, navy, overproof. Of course. Uh, mix essence in three pints of water, boil and uh, water and coffee sugar. Bring to boil again... Again, remove from the heat, allow to cool, then blend in the rum as cooling, then get stuck into it. <laughs> That's it's, the best yeah, instruction. There's just one note on it from my dad. What, do you want to tell? He says, drink chilled. <laughs> Is that what it says? 
Oh, I thought it was drink killed, as in he made it and then oh. passed it around to everybody. He's like, yeah, drink nailed killed. it. No, I think it's drink chilled. Drink chilled. Yeah, Just in I case you were wondering be. whether you should drink that chilled or not. <laughs> Isn't that, that sounds cool? That is too. incredible. I thought it was pretty cool. I was just yeah, like, what I a, love it. Weird, a, a weird thing to find. Yeah. What was his job? Well, yours is heaps better than mine. <laughs> Do you know what? He was a meteorologist there, which makes it quite funny that I read the weather out in a terrible fashion every day. Huh. Wow. Yeah. So it's how many years old? Thirty eight. So this is there's a so there's a museum in Tasmania that's mm. like the Anair Museum. And so we sent all of Dad's Antarctic stuff to them. Uh so it's on display in the Anair. So he oh, kept he kept wow. all his like bags and stuff from his time on Macquarie Island. Yeah. And and this was just this one thing that was stuffed in a box. I didn't have anything to do. Maybe it was like in a book and it fell yeah, out. Right. It was yeah, one of those right. things where I thought, how strange. It's come from, so it's got the stamp here of the Macquarie Island radio office, but that um, font, that's not a typewriter, is it? That's like an electronic typewriter. Or, I, I reckon it's come through like a telegram or something oh, like that. Oh, do you think so? Yeah, yeah, that's not a typewriter. Oh, that's really cool. I reckon someone's like radioed it to him. That is so cool. Don't you reckon? So it might be, yeah, yeah. and I don't know the I reckon story. he's probably put out the call, look, we need a, yeah. need a, a coffee dr- liqueur. <laughs> You've got a coffee liqueur recipe, send it through. I was um, chatting, drink killed. That thanks, that's such a funny <laughs> interpretation of that. I uh, had a friend, um, oh, I met someone last week that had just come back from Antarctica, had been living there for five months. Oh, what were was, they doing? Oh, she's, I don't actually know because she said it was just boring admin government kind of oh, stuff. Okay. It was just like, oh, she goes, it's so boring. It's not worth talking about. I'm like, oh, yeah, but what else? And she goes, yeah. She just talked about how it was really funny. Uh, well, not funny. It's just weird how quickly you acclimatise to where you are. Like, it's, in, yeah, right. it's not awe-inspiring every day. I could imagine it would be. Yeah. yeah it kind of become, I think Macquarie Island, I mean, the photos... In 68, the photos that we saw of it were quite extraordinary. Mm. You know, it was kind of like king penguins and giant bull elephant thing. What are they yeah. called? The oh, big yeah, seals. Elephant seals. And, and also I think this was a bit of a, a time where uh, everyone just did what they wanted because yeah, Dad yeah. used to tell us stories of the, them um, running. I mean, this is terrible. I mean, obviously, please, this is the 1960s and probably not the way you treat animals these days, but, like, they would race along the backs of the bull seals. Oh, my God. That's... And bare feet to see... I know. Yeah, right. I know. It's messed up, isn't it? These are the stories. See how far they could get. Different times. Different times. <laughs> Chug down a bit of a coffee liqueur. Yeah, two get years on. in. Maybe he could have just been telling us that to scare, scare us as kids. Who knows? I never really knew what the truth was. So oh. That's a really good show and tell. I'm not bringing mine out anymore. Whoa. You sure? Okay, next week. Next week. All right. Another time. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. 